You're listening to Good Shepherd Brentwood's Sermon Feed. Today's sermon was preached by Mother Natalie Van Kirk and recorded on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 2022. I speak to you in the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for who you who is Messiah and Lord. Friends, the title of my sermon this morning is A Cumulative Case for Christmas. From the time I was in second grade until I finished high school, I took piano lessons. I cannot say that I ever developed any great skill owing largely to the lack of devotion to my practice. But taking piano lessons was an important part of my intellectual and psychological development. I learned to read music, some about the bits and pieces of music and how they fit together and a lot about the great composers of the classical tradition. I also learned, perhaps most importantly, that not everything I ever tried was going to be easy and that some things would require a lot of practice in order to be good at them. Even simple, boring things like scales were important building blocks in developing skill and understanding. Frankly, my parents deserve an award for listening to all those years of half-hearted practice. I doubt, seriously, that they ever expected my sister or I to grow into great pianists, but we took piano lessons because my parents were convinced that one could not be truly educated without a knowledge of music. What would probably surprise them, and certainly bemuses me all these years later, is how important piano lessons turned out to be in anchoring and developing my faith. Somewhere around the time of middle school, a big, thick book of Christmas carols appeared as part of our lessons. And starting around the 1st of November, I would begin to practice the carols in that book. Practicing carols is the only time that I can remember that I actually spent more than my required time at the piano on any given day. I played them and I sang the words to myself. There were carols from Poland and France and Germany and all over the world, and Here Comes Santa Claus was not part of the repertoire. But every sort of Christmas carol and lullaby that you could imagine could be found there. Pity my poor parents for having to listen to that for six to eight weeks straight. It had an effect on me, though. Somehow the words of those carols worked themselves into my brain and into my heart. And when I was about 13, I can remember telling my mother, you know, there must be something true about this whole Jesus and Christmas thing. Otherwise, why would people have written so much music about it and kept that music and and kept singing it year after year for hundreds of years? It doesn't make sense if it's not true. 
Now, we weren't what you could call a particularly devout family, and so lots of questions about things like that were always in the air. All through high school and college, though, especially in those periods when I wanted to be sophisticated and smart and considered myself an agnostic, that thought, that little question lingered in the back of my mind. As I learned more about music and listened to the truly great pieces of music like Bach's St. Matthew's Passion and Handel's Messiah, as I learned about and experienced the glories of Gothic architecture and be a became acquainted with the soul-piercing beauty of Christian art, the great stuff anyway. That question kept coming up. How could so much genius and beauty and, and treasure be devoted to a bunch of made-up stories or something that was a lie? Now, I can't say that I was truly a Christian at that point in my life, I was clinging to my agnosticism. I told myself that, that I couldn't really be sure about this God thing, much less Jesus and miracles and the Trinity. None of that made any sense to me, and it was certainly completely outside of my experience. And, and so in my world and among my tribe, my doubt, my lack of wholehearted conviction and religious commitment my distrust of institutions, especially the church, and my desire to be all that I could be without any interference from anyone else marked me as smart and sophisticated. And I really, really wanted people to think that I was smart and sophisticated. Still, I would go to chapel at Christmas right in the middle of finals and let the glories of the Messiah wash through me, and all the while I would sit there wondering what, besides something true, could have inspired earthly music that sounded as though it was the music of angels. Every year at Christmas, we come to Christmas Eve, I look out at a congregation with a lot of people in it who are somewhere between where I was all those years ago and an outright rejection of their faith. These are people who come to Christmas services because it makes their parents happy or because it just doesn't feel like Christmas if you don't sing a few carols and because, well, some of them aren't really quite sure what, what they're doing here, but they felt like they needed to come. You can see it in their body language and in their faces. They're not sure what they ought to do with the story of a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit and singing angels and shepherds and the glory of God. It's certainly outside of their experience. Part of the issue, I think, for them and for all of us who have been there is that we live in a materialist world. Now, I don't mean materialism, where it's all about what we have or what we get, uh, this isn't about lots of presents for pretty girls, as Lucy says in Charlie Brown's Christmas. Our materialist world is one that thinks that the only things that you can know or perceive with your senses are true. If you could prove it with a mathematical model or a scientific experiment, then it is real. And it is a world that believes that scientific proofs are the realest of all real things 
and completely ignores the fact that if with a scientific experiment, you have to begin with a hypothesis. And so you are only going to find what you're looking for. But as philosophers and even scientists figured out in the last century, understanding the, the world this way severely limits what you can actually know. Science can work out the function of different parts of the cell or, or what chemicals induce certain reactions in our bodies, but it cannot tell you how you should live or if your significant other loves you. The questions, the answers to the last two questions are built often on what is known as a cumulative case argument. For example, suppose you were convinced that the very best way that you could live would be to take advantage of everyone you possibly could and to never tell the truth. To put on a show that the people out in front of you wanted to see. You know, there's a currently rather famous crypto trader and grifter who goes by his initials who comes to mind. And after some years of living that way, you'll find yourself without friends and reviled by everyone who has ever known you and solidly in jail. And a philosopher would look at you and say that the cumulative case argument for your life says that what you did was no way to live at all. Christians often say, especially at Christmas, that the entire course of human history changed on the night of Christ's birth. There's no scientific proof for that. I mean, really, a baby in a manger, a few shepherds who thought they heard angels singing, but there is a cumulative case for it, and it's a good one. What is that cumulative, ca cumulative case? Some of it lies in the radical change that Christianity made to the way that we think about ourselves and about each other in response to the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of this child in Bethlehem, the entire world changed and is still changing. One of the very first things that changed was the conviction that all human beings matter, no matter their age, their sex, their social status. They all have worth and dignity because they all bear God's image. Have we ever lived perfectly into that? No. We're still working on it. But it is not a notion that everyone around the world shares. It is not a universal. And in the world of Jesus, it was totally novel. It is a foundational belief of Christianity. And because we are convinced that every human being has worth and dignity, we're convinced that we must care for the widowed, the orphaned, and the crippled, as the Bible says. That's biblical language for the poor and the oppressed, and it is why no Christian can turn their back on the starving and the brutalized. Coupled with these convictions came the conviction that justice meant equal treatment under the law regardless of your social position. Again, in Jesus' world, that was a new idea. And we have not always lived into it perfectly. 
but the bedrock belief was always there, and it is the principle on which all Western jurisprudence has been written. Another part of the cumulative case is how we live our lives and the virtues we pursue. We practice love and forgiveness, not because God's sitting up here just waiting for us to step out of line so he can smite us, but because God loves us and desires us and wants us in a healed relationship with him and with one another. In Christ, we have been given the healer and mediator who brings us back into that relationship. And when we pursue that relationship, all the anxiety, the exhaustion, the depression, the nihilism with which we live every day will dissolve because we matter and we are loved. The cumulative case also lies in the history of the church's mission in the world. Since the very beginning, Jesus' followers have built orphanages and homes for the aged and hospitals, schools, universities, soup kitchens, shelters for the destitute and the oppressed. By three to four hundred years after Christ's death, that kind of social infrastructure in every major city and community had been built by Christians, but not by anyone else. Even in our own country, if you look carefully at the history, in most communities, the first schools, and most especially the schools for girls, were built by churches and church communities. Then there are the hospitals like St. Thomas, universities like Vanderbilt, aid organizations like GraceWorks and the Nashville Mission, all of them founded by churches. The cumulative case is also made in the life of individual Christians like St. Anthony, who heard Christ's instruction to a rich young man, sell all you have and give it to the poor, and did just that, selling everything and giving away a famous fortune to become a hermit in the desert dedicated to prayer and peace in the world. Or there's William Wilberforce, an Englishman of the 18th and 19th centuries who inherited a fortune that would be worth three to four hundred million dollars today. Following his conversion, he spent his life, his health, and his wealth, all of it, on ending the slave trade in England and in the colonies. As a result of Wilberforce's campaign, the British government spent millions of pounds and thousands of sailors' lives interdicting slavers all over the oceans of the world so that they could stop the, uh, stop the slave trade, not just in Britain, but everywhere. And when Wilberforce died, after he had succeeded in getting the laws passed in England, he had given away all of that fortune. Or even go back to the Bible, there was Lydia, who was a wealthy and independent woman in Philippi in a world where a wealthy and independent woman was as unique as a unicorn, who ended up giving up her position and traveling to preach and teach the gospel all through Macedonia. Or Paul, who spent all of his life proclaiming the freedom of the gospel to those who followed Jew Christ, Jew and Gentile, male and female, 
slave or Greek, all were called by Christ and all were beloved. Now has everyone who's ever claimed the title of Christian been so completely converted or so effective? No, I wish that were true, but it's not. But what, besides truth at its purest and most absolute sense, could convince anyone to do the things that these people had done? As St. Paul told the church in Rome, it is only with the greatest of difficulty that one will die for, for a just person, though perhaps for a good person you might find the courage to die. But through the child whose birth we celebrated tonight, many have been inspired to give all that they have for those they did not know, whether they were just or not. And it often included the gift of their lives. So if you're one of the doubters and the questioners here tonight, and even if you aren't, I invite you to take a step back with me to that place where my 13-year-old self was playing and singing Christmas carols and hymns. Take a deep breath. Let go of your doubts and skepticisms for just a few minutes. Uncross your arms from in front of your heart and dare to sing the words and listen with your heart to what they say. Some of the things we sing will be hundreds of years old. Some of it will be newer. But what, what besides the advent of truth in the life of a child could inspire so many to follow, to love, and to sing for so long? I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Messiah and Christ the Lord. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in hearing our sermons in real time, you can check us out at our website, www.goodshepherdbrentwood.org or attend online during our 1015 Sunday live stream on YouTube. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Good Shepherd Brentwood. If you have any questions or comments, or maybe you'd like to meet with one of our clergy, you can email us at office at goodshepherdbrentwood.org. Or if you're interested in visiting in person, or have questions about our programs and services, you can text 615-637-3738, where you'll be contacted by our staff. We'd love to meet you.